Welcome to Democracy in Question, the podcast series that explores the challenges democracies are facing around the world. I'm Shalini Randeria, Rector President of Central European University, Vienna, and Senior Fellow at the Albert Hirschman Center on Democracy at the Graduate Institute, Geneva. This is the 10th episode of Season 5 of Democracy in Question and the final episode this year. It's my great pleasure to welcome today the Iranian-American writer and journalist Azadeh Moaveni, who's been covering the Middle East for more than two decades. She's a renowned expert on Iran, the Islamic State, as well as Middle Eastern politics and Islamic society in general. Her work addresses how women are impacted by political conflicts and how their social and political rights are affected by militarism and Islamism. She started her career as a journalist in 1999, reporting for the Cairo Times and Al Haram Weekly, when she traveled to Tehran to report on the student uprising that year. After three years as the Tehran Correspondence of Time, she joined the Los Angeles Times and covered the war in Iraq and its aftermath. Her international bestseller, Lipstick Jihad, recounts her experiences of the Iranian reform and women's rights movements. Her book after that, Iran Awakening, a memoir of revolution and hope, was co-authored with the Nobel Prize laureate Shirin Ebadi. She's a regular contributor to the London Review of Books, Guardian, Financial Times, Foreign Policy, and also the New York Times. Azadeh, whose name means freedom, has also directed the Gender and Conflict Project at the International Crisis Group, working especially on women in detention camps in Nigeria and Syria. Azadeh and I will discuss today the ongoing protests that have rocked Iran for the last three months. What began as a wave of street demonstrations and protests has by now turned into a veritable revolution led by courageous and defiant women. On September 13th this year, a young woman, Masa Gina Amini, was detained by the guidance patrol in Tehran. Savagely beaten by the morality police, she passed away on September the 16th. Her crime was her apparent failure to abide by the strict rules prescribing veiling in public, which has been contested by many Iranian women ever since it was introduced in 1983. Political mobilization of women has a long history in Iran, beginning with their role in the Constitutional Revolution, 1905 to 1911, to their active participation in the 1979 revolution that toppled the American-supported Shah regime. The continuing protests sparked by Masa Amini's death seem to be, however, unprecedented in the scale of spontaneous mobilization of not only women, but also men all over Iran, many of them schoolgirls who are courageously defying the regime. More than 400 people, some of them young children, have already lost their lives over the last three months due to the brutal attempts by the regime to suppress these protests. I'll discuss with Azadeh the growing waves of protests, ask her to situate the current events in a broader historical context and to explain to us how the oppressive patriarchal regime of the Islamic Republic of Iran has paradoxically generated forms of public participation, collective action and mobilization which have empowered women. 
She will also elucidate the role of the media and of patterns of solidarity emerging in these protests and reflect on whether these could potentially lead to a transformation of the regime or, in fact, to its end. Azadeh, welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for joining me today. It's wonderful to be able to discuss these issues as they are unfolding in front of our eyes with you. Oh, it's really my pleasure, Shalini. I've been so looking forward to our conversation. Women in Iran are reclaiming the right for bodily autonomy and self-determination. Their body politics promises to transform the Iranian body politic beyond recognition. Could you begin by situating these protests in a broader historical context of women's engagement in social and political activism and also explain to us what is different this time? And is the revolution we are witnessing driven by grievances against the regime's ultra-conservative policies much broader grievances than just the headscarf or veiling or hijab and the failure of the regime to address any demands for reforms, despite so many demonstrations and protests over the years. Well, to, to start with, you, you asked about situating what we're seeing now, this feminist-infused revolt in a longer arc of Iranian women's activism. And, and actually, you alluded to one of the earliest phases of that in your, in your introduction, um, women's role in the, the constitutional revolution. I don't think that it's sort of largely perceived by the outside world that Iranian women have played a very influential role in politics and in shaping the direction of the country, both domestically and on the world stage since the, the late 19th century, from the late Qajar period, that's the monarchy that governed Iran before the, the Pahlavi era, women were influential in the court of the king, propelling a boycott against tobacco. The king had agreed to a controversial concession, a tobacco concession to the British that were not directly colonizing Iran at the time, but were indirectly essentially affecting the country's politics and, and exploiting a lot of its resources through these concessions. Uh, so they were at the very forefront of this boycott. And I think that inflects one of the strands of Iranian women's activism, which has been a strong and very ardent nationalist position against imperialism. So always women's activism, it's been multi-stranded. It's been anti-imperialistic, but very much at the same time focused on internal domestic reforms, both in the formal sphere. So um, in, the, in the 1920s, there was a big push. Women's organizations and women's activism focused a lot around building an education sphere so that women could uh, become literate and expanding that. And, and of course, that was a domestic battle because Iran is a, is a highly conservative society, especially at the time. Um, you know, they were up against patriarchal attitudes about women's role in society. They were up against an outraged clergy. We can trace that through the middle of the 20th century when Iran had, of course, a secular monarchy run by Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, whose government enacted top-down secular feminism. So this was sort of state feminism intended to modernize Iran 
through liberal social mores. So his father banned the wearing of the veil in 1936. The Shah's government um, enacted a sweeping family code that gave women really for that time uh, strikingly equal rights in marriage and divorce and child custody. And so Leading up to the 1979 revolution, they were part of the leftist opposition, the guerrilla movements, the Marxist opposition. They were part of the Islamist opposition. So really, it's it's a very long story that precedes what we're seeing today. But what I find striking about the movement now is that it is collapse the the distinction between formal and informal activism. You don't have women um, asking for the repeal of the hijab laws through legislation, and you don't see them cautiously organizing in a grassroots way to sort of persuade and pull society along. They're just angry, and they have imposed a new legal reality, essentially, a new status quo. They're walking around the streets of the whole country. You can see the footage on YouTube. It's extraordinary. They've canceled this law and they've imposed it also on their country people who don't like this, many of them. You know, 30% of Iran is still quite religious and still very much loyal to the system. In the early 2000s, often, if my headscarf slipped or if I was wearing something wrong, it wasn't simply the morality police. Ordinary people would glare at you or would say something. You know, there is a patriarchal element of Iranian society, and these laws do not come out of nowhere. The Islamic Republic might feel very alien to the majority of Iranians today, but it, it did come out of Iranian society. Um, so that's what I think is quite incredible about this moment, is that it's sort of women have taken on an unfair and unjust set of laws, but they've also imposed their way of wishing to live on their societal fathers, brothers, disapproving neighbors. Everyone just has to accept it now. So to come back to this whole question of some of the paradoxes in the way in which women's rights have come to play a role in uh, Iran, interestingly, it was partly due to the strict imposition of um, veiling that many Iranian women from more traditional backgrounds were able to gain access at all to the public sphere. So women were then able to carve out spaces for subtler forms of resistance and participation, as you point out. But among the most remarkable unintended consequences of the Islamic Republic is the increase in women's literacy from 36% to around 98%, while the share of women students in higher education has risen from 15% to 60%. In fact, so much so that the conservatives in the eighth majlis, the parliament, 10 years ago introduced affirmative action policies for male students. It, this is, it's, it's really amazing. But as you have pointed out in a recent article, women have disproportionately also borne the brunt of the economic woes that the country has faced with unemployment rates, which are much higher than those of men. So the question here for me is a twofold one. Do you think that 
the movement is likely to be much more successful this time because women play such a prominent role. Because as we know from sociological uh, studies of uh, social movements all around the world, movements led by women are usually uh, much uh, more nonviolent in the kinds of strategies and tactics that they use. And so a violent response from those in power can easily backfire and reveal more about the weaknesses of the regime than its uh, strengths, actually showing its desperation in the face of the courage shown by these sometimes very young schoolgirls too. And what do you make of some of the concessions which were announced just this week, such as the revision of the veiling requirement and one sort of not proper announcement, but a hint at the uh, dismantling of morality police. On the side of the the perhaps increased potential of this movement, the, the possibility that it could be more successful than other episodes of protest that Iran has experienced in the last 25 years, because it is centered around or was sparked by feminist demands and because it so broadly includes women. Um, I, I certainly think that this moment is fundamentally different than anything that has preceded it. As a protest, it has marked a turning point, um, and whether that's through the collapsing of ordinary people's fear of the government's social controls as they're sort of enacted on the streets through morality policing. So, so I do think that this is going to be the most significant phase of civil challenge that the Islamic Republic has ever faced in its history. And I do think that it does have a chance of being more successful because of the role of women, um, simply because it's harnessing half of society. So I do. I think that it is tremendously unifying um, and it pulls along society, united around a movement that may not have a vision yet, but that everyone has a stake in. And I don't think that's ever happened before. Not everyone had a stake in protests about uh, just uh, workers' rights. Not everyone had a stake in protests about the closure of a newspaper and around freedom of speech or about elections, but everyone has a stake in this. We can see that in the sort of incredible sweep and turnout of, of the protests. So I think the role of women is, is fundamentally what makes this uh, the momentous movement that it is with the potential. Um, on, on the concessions, uh, I don't think they're concessions at all. The hijab and Islamic tenets around morality are at the very core of, of the system. And it's not something that certainly under this supreme leader um, and that in this moment, the system will give up on at all. And it also has a constituency that for 40 years, it's cultivated around this ideology. And that constituency is the very, very last vestige of the system's strength. And so it has to deliver to them. It has to pander to them. It has to uphold their expectations. So it's a narrow base, but it's the only base the system has. And that base would be uh, bewildered flummoxed would not be able to tolerate a change in the hijab law. So I think what we're hearing, uh, the attorney general having said that uh, the morality police is suspended, uh, is very ambiguous sort of trial balloons around what they can do to kind of potentially muddy the waters a little bit, make morality policing much more diffuse. Maybe they use surveillance cameras and facial recognition technology. They've floated um, 
using facial recognition to then freeze the bank accounts of women who are captured outside, not having worn their hijab. So essentially turning it into a much more technology-fueled, subtle, but still highly controlling approach to, to the same thing so that it won't lead to these clashes we see, but that the, the element of control uh, and fear um, is still very much maintained. So what, what was um, surprising for an observer uh, of Iran from the outside, like myself, is at the fact that we saw so many older women, but especially also religiously observant women, as well as young men, come out on the streets in support. So do you think there's a chance that there will be much, much larger popular support across the business communities, the bazaaris, the people who have been also involved earlier in uh, solidarity strikes, labor movements, etc.? Uh, but the question that I had was, I mean, given the fact that there is so much economic uh, misery in Iran, thanks to partly the sanctions and partly thanks to the domestic uh, policies of this regime, do you think it'll be the economic issues which could lead to a much larger mobilization than the women's issues? I think that what Iranians realize now is that they're all interconnected, that the the failures of governance or the unwillingness of the of the government or the state to accept the will of the people in issues of dress and uh, mandatory dress codes, in disallowing essentially any kind of genuine participation in the electoral process anymore. Um, that these are all linked together, that the, that the state of the economy is a result of these same broken politics. So that people's various grievances, I think they now see them as all part and parcel of the fundamental political failing of the system. So whereas before, I think there was a way to sort of differentiate and have baskets of problems, like these are economic problems, these are cultural social problems, these are problems of political freedom, and that there are all different constituencies that hold different priorities around these things. And like here we'll pacify some, and then there we'll give a little bit there, and that's how we'll manage it all. I think what's broken through in, in people's sort of attitude towards the system is that they're all interconnected. The reason there are sanctions is because the government has an ideal ideological vision of regional security uh, that does not provide welfare to its citizens. There's a constellation now in, in the minds of people uh, around the mode of governance, which does not reflect the popular will, and that everything is now connected, which is why I think that the protests have become so radical. So while the backdrop of the absolutely immiserated economy and, and people's stratospheric drop in quality of life. I mean, there's no middle class in Iran anymore. I think it's hard to even capture the, the fall in people's living standards, the sort of soaring inflation. That is definitely an accelerant. And, and I think we have to be sort of very aware and, and acknowledge that, you know, it, it is in an impoverished country that is out on the streets right now. And that is part of it. I think people now see 
their impoverishment is a symptom of broken politics. So they won't be pacified anymore by some public subsidies or a little extra spending here and there. Um, it is now, I think, apparent to everyone that the reason the economy is broken is because of domestic politics. But uh, Azadeh, to pick up one point which you've just made, which is the fact that there is an interlinkage between the economic, political, cultural questions, and I think you're right on that. But the point you just made was about the effects of the sanctions. There's little that we can say probably that's good about this regime, but we should say it did uh, go out of its comfort zone to strike a deal with the U.S. government under Obama. It did try to reach out and much against its ideological views, it uh, entered into a treaty on the nuclear deal. And don't you think that the discontent is also a result of, under Trump, the U.S. government backing out from a deal which could have been a path forward, not only for nuclear security in the region, but also for economic prosperity back in Iran. Yes, Shalini, you raise such an important point. Um, and, and it really is, for me, a, a very depressing one, because this was a deal that was intended to have so many regional, global benefits flow from it, security-wise. It would have halted uh, a nuclear armament race in, in the Middle East. Um, it was a disarmament deal, but was intended to bring Iran out of economic isolation and eventually, ideally, out of political isolation. It was meant to build confidence and reset politics between Iran and the West. And it was certainly a shock to me and I think to many that, that the Islamic Republic signed this deal. Um, they poured concrete into their nuclear reactors. They installed cameras. You know, they turned on all the cameras. They they accepted the most invasive inspections regime ever in history of their civilian nuclear program. Uh, and in exchange, they were meant to be able to come out from under multilateral economic sanctions and rejoin the world economy. And this was a, a painfully negotiated and crafted deal by the Americans, the Europeans, the Iranians. And the Trump administration did pull out of it. And I mean, it sealed Iran's fate, I think, essentially, because the Trump administration regionally was driven by Israeli, Emirati, Saudi interests, um, very much seeking to isolate the Islamic Republic to ensure that Iran was never normalized. You know, I think that's the sort of crux of it, that Iran should never be normalized in the world because the normalization of Iran would upend the regional political status quo. You know, you have a Middle East full of authoritarian regimes that are arms export markets for the United States and that are partners to, to Israel, a normalized Iran with a highly skilled, educated population trading with the world, it would be too upsetting to the interests of these other powers. And so the sort of path to isolating Iran, perhaps leading to war with Iran, was the path taken by the Trump administration. And it cemented the idea in the minds of the Islamic Republic that the United States could never be trusted, that it was a mistake, that that Iran's lonely path, this isolated path where it has to look to the, to the east, that it has to rely on China and Russia for its kind of political backing. This was a path that didn't have to be. Um, it was essentially imposed on Iran by the Trump administration um, and is a large part of the, the reason why we are where we are today. And it's a really fatal and tragic 
blot on the record of the Biden administration that they didn't immediately jump to get back into this deal and to reverse the the damage caused by Trump's withdrawal. Um, because essentially, as you said, you know, there was there was a different path, a path that everyone took after years of enmity that could have led to slow and gradual change in Iran without violence, without the threat of external military intervention. Uh, and the people that we see on the streets today, these children who are dying and who are being killed by security forces, maybe they could have pursued the same aims through means that didn't require their death. Um, and we did not take that. We were not allowed to take that path because of, unfortunately, um, the Trump administration's catastrophic decision. So if I come back to the uh, protest movements that we're seeing, one remarkable aspect of it is the reliance on popular media culture from viral videos of young women knocking off the turbans of clerics quite playfully, but also all the symbolic gestures of solidarity that we've seen by famous um, actors, actresses, football, soccer celebrities recently also in the Qatar World Cup. And the regime has reacted by instituting internet uh, curfews and censorship of most social media. So could you say something about how a reliable information is being accessed by people across the country on the one hand? And on the other hand, can one trust uh, so many of these diaspora media sources, which you've also noted in a recent article of yours, are often hijacked by shady players of various factions and interest groups? This is such a crucial point that you raise. Um, I think the, the lack of credible verifiable information is is a real crisis. It's a crisis inside Iran, and it's a crisis for us covering Iran and trying to understand what's going on in, in Iran from, from the outside. Of course, Iranians inside the country, because the domestic media landscape has been suffocated by censorship for so many years, must rely on outside sources for news about the country. And the, the diaspora media market in, in the Persian language is saturated by opposition networks or news networks that are funded by opponents of Iran. So Saudi Arabia funds the main um, television network called Iran International, which broadcasts out of London. Um, and this is a channel, this is a network that often runs just straight out fake news. It runs disinformation. It very happily platforms and, and gives airtime to uh, terrorist groups who have enacted attacks on, on Iranian soil. It is a bad actor in, in this space. I think we have to say much of it is the fault of the Iranian system. Um, it's it's shut down the independent press. It has categorically made uh, the media landscape uh, in Iran unreadable. Like young people in their twenties, like ninety seven percent of them look to outside sources for their news about what's going on inside the country. Um, so this becomes part of the story because these media outlets they do have an agenda. Many of them, and like. In the U.S. under the Trump administration, their presence pulls the more objective, responsible media. The BBC Persian network, for example, gets pulled to the right to be able to compete with the, the more right-wing Saudi-funded networks. So we do have a, a sort of political ecosystem of information that is very much shaped by the opponents of the Islamic Republic. And they see that as a clear threat. They've raised it with the Saudis at meetings. But it has polluted the information landscape. 
Um, and then in terms of the content that we see coming out of Iran from the protests as well, um, much of that is just unverified. So it's very difficult to have a, a good sense on any given week how many protests there were, whether the footage that we've seen is actually from that week, is it not from two months ago? It's very unscientific, our, our knowledge of, of what is unfolding. And the sort of verification that should be done. It's very expensive. It's very time consuming, but that should be done by the New York Times, by the main outlets that cover Iran, uh, isn't being done. So I think it's important to, to at least raise the flag that what we think we know about what is happening in Iran is very partial um, and, and perhaps um, not entirely accurate um, and that it's highly politicized. So I think this is a very important point which you have made also in a recent article where you say that, and I quote you, the grand theater of geopolitical contest between the Islamic Republic and its opponents in the region, including the West, make it very difficult to get any reliable information at all. As an Iranian-American familiar with both sides, the question I would have for you is, what do you think are the dilemmas facing the international community and civil society in uh, Europe and in the U.S. about support for democracy and women's empowerment in Iran? Because the problem here would be, on the one hand, supporting these um, current uh, protesters may delegitimize them in the eyes not only of the regime, but also maybe of some fellow Iranian citizens not supporting them in any way, however, leaves them entirely to the mercy of a really, really brutal, repressive regime. It is a real dilemma. I think for international civil society and the the quite extraordinary level of, of global attention that's been given to the protests, um, there are a few uncontroversial ways to support and to engage. And I think that basically amounts to ensuring that the internet is kept on in Iran through different means. So whether that's providing access to a VPN so that people can bypass the blocks on many sites or through other ways. Uh, connectivity is a I would say, uncontroversial way to try and support and engage from the outside. I think there are two key questions about diaspora and global civil society engagement and dealing with what's going on inside Iran. One is who is considered to be speaking on behalf of the Iranian people. And so there are um, activists in the diaspora who have been seeking regime change for many years, who've been advocating military intervention that are hoping a, a Libya scenario can be unfolded in, inside Iran. Um, I think ensuring that Western civil society doesn't anoint these outside activists as speaking on behalf of the Iranian people, because there are major cleavages between the diaspora and inside Iran. So I think um, being very scrupulous about who is seen as speaking on behalf of Iranians inside the country is sort of one key way of, of taking care and not participating in politics that can alienate or damage the cause of, of the protesters inside. Um, I think the second point is this question of whether Iran should continue to be sanctioned. You know, you do see people um, calling for 
shutting down Iranian embassies or their embassies in Iran, pulling out, like cutting all diplomatic relations, ending any negotiations with Iran about its nuclear program. You know, do Iranians inside want this? Um, I think that's an open question. I think sanctions, as, as we were discussing earlier, directly harm and hurt the quality of life uh, of, of those inside. So these questions are also very difficult ones. I think there's a very vocal and angry chokehold in the diaspora on these questions. Uh, you can see in Germany and in, in France, in the UK, in the US, um, the essentially the Iranian diaspora has turned these questions into an issue of domestic politics in these different countries. And it may be pushing governments to take positions that are not in line with what the majority of Iranians would, would want. So I think being scrupulous around or thinking critically around who speaks for Iranians um, and what kind of policies uh, would best aid their movement is, is a really critical conversation to have. So let me ask you another question about the dilemma facing us looking at the movement uh, from outside. Do you think there is a risk of unwittingly corroborating conspiracy theories of the uh, regime, especially of negating even the autonomous agency of Iranian women and men if we want to somehow misread the collective public rituals of removing the hijab as just a kind of sign of Western Organization. So would we be sort of overlooking the rich history and the local traditions of what one may call, uh, I coming from India, you with Iranian roots, we would call non-aligned feminism. Feminism, which is not necessarily an embrace of so-called Western values either. That's a brilliant point. And it's one that I wish could be picked up on more fruitfully. I was in a gathering of uh, Middle Eastern women um, policy analysts a few weeks ago. And I was sitting with Saudi women, Emirati women, Kuwaiti women, and there were Iranians there. And we sort of turned to them and said, you know, why have women in the, in, in the Gulf um, been so quiet about these protests? Why are they not supporting them? Because you face many of, of these similar issues. And they said, basically, our societies are conservative and we cannot get behind a movement that is about taking off headscarves that appears to be anti-Islamic. And I thought, wow, it's really a reflection of how little dialogue there is between feminist movements or feminist activism in these different countries. That what Iranian women are doing is so sort of read through or understood through this Western construct of a clash of civilizations rather than seeing it as an organic Iranian-driven um, movement for choice. I, I said to them, look, it is not anti-hijab. Many of these women, their mothers wear hijab. It is just about the choice to wear hijab or not. It just happens to be demonstrated through taking it off, you know, in response to being forced to put it on. So it is a pro-choice movement and not an anti-hijab movement. Um, and I think that's really the heart of it that, that does get lost because, you know, the history of Iranian women's activism that we were talking about at the beginning of our conversation, as I said, does have a twinned heritage in anti-imperialism and domestic feminism. Uh, so it is not a sort of embrace of this laicite Western liberality that is often, I think, sort of portrayed as being about, especially in countries like France that have their own sort of domestic bugaboos uh, about these issues. So this is what is getting drowned out in the polluted media atmosphere that we were talking about, that there is 
a real movement towards or a demand for a secular model of government that is organically Iranian. And by secular, it doesn't need to be Western. It doesn't need to be aligned with an imperialist orbit. But I would say, I suppose that the one thing that strikes me, and I wish I could have some good conversations with Iranian feminists about this, in the Middle East in particular, do you think there is space anymore, Shalini, for a non-aligned women's movement? The ordering of the region along the lines of the Saudi-Israeli-Emirati axis I think it means that eventually Iran will have to make peace with Israel. And these questions of domestic politics and and what kind of brand of feminism women are espousing might just have to be subordinate to that. So I don't have a good answer to this very rich and complicated question, but I do despair at how this is being characterized as a sort of uh, laic kind of rejection of Islam movement and that the non-aligned roots of or spirit of, of what is happening, or its heritage at least, is is just forgotten. I think this is a really, really important question for feminist movements all over the world. Uh, but let me ask you my last question, Azadeh, and that is, do you think the regime could drum up support at the last moment by drumming up fears of Iran turning into another Syria or Afghanistan so the breakup of the country is something that can be only prevented by this regime remaining in power? And do you think that a regime change is a real possibility now or what do you see are the most likely scenarios for the future of your country? Certainly the the state does try to push this, this deep fear and anxiety that these unrest, these rioters as it portrays the protests are part of a plot to collapse Iran as a country, to make it a failed state like Libya and Syria. You see increasingly in the regime's messaging about what it is protecting by trying to put down the protest, they invoke the flag of Iran. They invoke the territorial integrity of Iran. So that's really the key card that they're playing, is that maybe as a system we have almost nothing left to offer you, but we can offer you security. And to the point where people are so so reject that and are so suspicious of it that when there was what seems absolutely clear was a genuine ISIS attack in Iran last month, Overwhelmingly, Iranians thought that it was the government doing it to sort of spark exactly these security fears. So this sort of paranoid mindset that has set into Iranians um, around the government using security as as a fear tactic against them is is really, really deep. I think that that fear of we can become Syria, it's not compelling anymore to to people. I was watching some... um, video footage yesterday of Iranian students this week on campuses. Um, There was an event at Sharif University, and there was an activist addressing a member of parliament and another government official. And I was really struck by the sharpness of the students' comments, like standing on a stage, speaking to this official, saying, religious democracy, religious government is over. We want a secular government. We want a secular system. They are asking for no less than regime change. They are asking for no less than a total overhaul in the system of government that they have. And I think that's really evident that that's what people want in the streets. So what you ask is really the golden question is, how do you get there? And what would come next? So we know what people don't want, which is a theocracy, but what do they want? And how will they get there? And there's no positive vision for that articulated in the streets. The protesters don't have a leader and they don't have a vision for that. 
And I think that is what has resulted in the sort of silent majority who sits at home not joining them out on the streets. So if there's a point at which they're able to sort of come up with a vision, an idea for what comes forward, either the whole sort of silent majority sitting at home is harnessed to their movement and we have a whole new proper revolution, um, or that's when the polarizations emerge again. That's when perhaps people splinter because maybe the vision that comes forward as a leading one does not have enough popular support. So I won't make any predictions about what could come next, only that it won't go away. These protests won't go away, that we're in a fundamentally new phase in the life of the Islamic Republic, that people categorically, the majority, um, feel that the the government does not represent them and that they want a whole new mode of governance for them and for their future. Um, and, and how that will play out, I think we just have to wait and see. Thank you so much for this really fascinating interview with so many insights, historical, political, and also uh, contemporary into the revolution led by women, which we are witnessing in Iran today. Thanks very much for being with me. Thank you so much for having me. The current revolt in Iran, sparked by feminist demands and led by women, has a long history. Iranian women have played an influential role in the country's political life for over a century. A mix of strong and ardent positions which have been anti-imperialist, together with demands for internal domestic reform. Leading up to the 1979 uh, revolution against the regime of the Shah, when women's rights were well established, though this was a rather top-down reform from the Shah regime that gave urban middle-class women their rights. Today, women have succeeded in imposing a new legal order in the Iranian public sphere. They have overturned by their demonstrations and their practice the unjust set of laws through sheer defiance. Women are asking for choice, choice to dress as they please, to move as they like in public. But these women's issues are now entangled in people's minds to the dismal state of the economy, coupled with fundamental political failures of the system. A fall in living standards, the galloping inflation, and the impoverishment that Iranian citizens have experienced are seen by them as symptoms of a broken politics, which they are no longer willing to accept. The sanctions imposed by the US government and by the international community have harmed and have hurt the Iranian people. Under Trump, backing out of the nuclear deal was a major mistake as it pushed Iran further into isolation and also perpetuated the radicalism of the regime. Reliable news on the country is hard to come by because the political ecosystem of information is highly politicized and has polluted the information and media landscape. There is a dilemma for international civil society about how it should best engage with the protests from the outside. Their most important contribution could be to ensure that the internet is kept running because connectivity is crucial. 
There are interesting questions also on representation. Who can speak on behalf of the Iranian people, given that there are major cleavages not only within the diaspora, but also between the diaspora or sections of the diaspora and protesters within the country? Young people are asking for a regime change. Many would prefer a secular, not necessarily a Western secular, but a secular model of government that is Iranian. The way forward seems unclear because what is lacking is a new positive vision of Iran's future and a clear path of how to get there. What is clear is Iran has changed as a result of the last three months of courageous protests by its citizens. This was the 10th episode of Season 5. Thank you very much for listening. Join us again on the 18th of January in the next year, after the holidays, when we'll start Season 6 of Democracy in Question with a discussion about democratic backsliding in America and differences between right-wing populism in Europe and the US with Tom Carruthers from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Please go back and listen to any episode you might have missed. And of course, let your friends know about the podcast if you're enjoying it. You can stay in touch with the work of the Central European University at www.ceu.edu and with the Albert Hirschman Center on Democracy at www.graduateinstitute.ch backslash democracy.